This lesson on Revelation chapter 12, we will be introduced to five of Revelation's main characters, some of whom symbolize individuals such as the male child and the great red dragon, and others of which symbolize group groups of individuals such as the woman, Michael, and the ark, the other angels, the other holy angels, and then the believing, believing remnant of Israel. Now, the central figure of this chapter is the great red dragon, because we find him at war with each of the other four figures of the chapter. Therefore, I have entitled our lesson, The Angry Red Dragon. And as we look at his anger directed against the other characters on the tribulation stage, we're going to consider, first of all, the dragon's war with the woman and with the male child, then the dragon's war with Michael and the holy angels. Then we will look at the dragon's wrath with the woman renewed. And finally, in verse 17, we'll look at the dragon's war with the woman's remnant. So we'll begin by looking at verses 1 to 6 concerning the dragon's war with the woman and the male child. John writes, beginning in chapter 12, verse 1, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days. Well, before we have any discussion about the activities that we read about in these verses, it is absolutely necessary for us to identify the characters that we find here, the three main characters. And they are... Number one, the woman clothed with the sun. Secondly, the male child that the woman delivers. And then thirdly, the great red dragon. Now, since everyone is agreed, all commentators are agreed, that the male child is who? The Lord Jesus Christ. And since the scripture itself actually gives us the identity of the great red dragon down in verse 9 it tells us that he is the old serpent called the devil and satan so there's no doubt about who he is then the only one remaining to really need to find out who who it is is the woman the woman who's clothed with the sun and has the moon under her feet and she has a crown of 12 stars on her head now the first thing that we want to notice with regard to this woman is that she is not to be taken as a literal woman i mean that's pretty obvious isn't it a woman could not be clothed with the sun without perishing very quickly. <laughs> so this isn't literally a woman clothed with the sun. Besides that, there'd be 12 more suns on her head, you know, <laughs> so she would burn up in no time. So it's obvious that she symbolizes something. And we also know this because of the word wonder, where John says, and I saw, a, or there appeared a great wonder in heaven. The wonder is the sun-clothed woman. Well, the Greek word there used for wonder 
actually means sign. So we know that she is a sign or a symbol of something. And then, of course, the big question is, well, what does she symbolize? What is she a sign of? And to this question, of course, there have been many answers. But the most important factor that we need to realize about this symbolic woman is her relationship to the male child who she brings forth. Now, there is no question about the identity of the male child. Verse 5 five tells us that this is a man-child who will rule all nations with a rod of iron. And we know without any doubt that that is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Psalm 2, we are told that it is God's Son who will rule the nations uh, with a rod of iron, and he will dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And also in Acts chapter 4, Christians identify Christ as being the one who will rule with a rod of iron. So there's no doubt we know the male child is the Lord Jesus. And then it also tells us that this male child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And of course that again speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ since he is the one who ascended into heaven to sit on his throne at the right hand of God the Father. So the woman then is who? She is the one who brought forth the male child, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Roman Catholic theologians identify this woman with the Virgin Mary who was, of course, no one can argue, she was the woman who brought forth the Lord Jesus Christ. She gave birth to the Lord. However, one of the most difficult problems with this interpretation, that the woman represents Mary, is that Mary did not continue on through the time of the tribulation period, as we find is true of this woman who flees into the wilderness and is preserved and nourished during that time of the great tribulation by God Himself, And no time in Mary's life was that fulfilled. Well, back in the early 1800s, there was a woman named Joanna Southcott who claimed that she was this woman of chapter 12. Can you imagine that? And that she predicted that in October of 1814, she would bring forth this male child. I guess she didn't know that he'd already been brought forth quite a few years earlier to that. But as things would be, she did not give birth to a male child, but she did manage to collect 200,000 followers anyway. Isn't it amazing? I guess you could just about get followers or any crazy thing you wanted to teach. Somebody would follow you. Now, the founder of Christian, the Christian science cult who was Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy. Why did she have so many names? Is that a lot of husbands or something? But she also claimed to be the woman of Revelation chapter 12. And the man-child, she said, this is a strange interpretation, but she said the man-child was Christian science, which is neither Christian nor scientific, by the way. And she interpreted the dragon who attempted to devour the male child, her cult, which she didn't call a cult, of course. But she said the male child is the mortal mind which attempts to attack her religion. Well, the popular Protestant view, and here we get a little closer to home, and this is the view that most of the mainline denominations follow, is that the woman is the church. Amillennialists who teach that God is finished with Israel, they are forced to make this woman the church. 
Therefore, they are also forced to put the church through the tribulation period, and they are forced to mix Jewish and Christian symbolism in order to make Israel refer to the church. Now, the biggest problem, please get this, because a lot of your churches would tell you that the woman here is the church. The biggest problem with the woman symbolizing the church is that the church did not bring forth the Lord Jesus Christ, the male child. It was totally the other way around. Christ brought forth the church. He said, I will build my church. There wasn't a church until after the Lord had ascended. And so it can't, you know, this can't be. The church is not the mother of Christ. She is the what? Well, she's actually the bride. She's the bride of Christ, right? And nowhere in the scripture do we find any symbolism which associates the church with the sun and the moon and with a 12-starred crown. Furthermore, if you remember back in lesson number 25, we gave a, a great many reasons why we believe here in this ministry that the scripture supports a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. In other words, that the church will have been raptured to heaven before the tribulation period even begins. Therefore, she cannot, the church cannot be the woman pictured here in Revelation 12 who is persecuted during the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. Now, by far the clearest and the least confusing and the best scripturally supported interpretation of this first main character of chapter 12 is that she represents the nation of Israel. Not only is this interpretation very consistent with the scriptures, because we often see in the Old Testament Israel portrayed as a woman in travail, a woman in, you know, birth pains. But it is also consistent with the fact that it was Israel which brought forth the male child, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, Paul, the Apostle Paul, asks the question, who are the Israelites? And he gives a lot of answers, but during that answer, he says that they are the ones from whom Christ in the flesh came. So Israel brought forth the male child. Also, the context of this chapter, if you remember is in the middle of Daniel's 70th week. And Daniel's prophecy, which we find in Daniel 9, verses 24 to 27, does not concern the church at all. His prophecy is about Israel and God's plan for redeeming Israel. And also remember we talked about how chapter 11 ended in verse 19 with uh, John seeing the temple of God opened in heaven and in the temple he saw the Ark of the Covenant. That's the verse which precedes this verse about the great wonder, the woman clothed with the sun. So God, the Holy Spirit, was setting the context for us. He was telling us about things that are strictly Jewish. The church doesn't have a temple. The church never had an Ark of the Covenant. These are Jewish things. So this clearly tells us that God is dealing with Jewish things. Now, the woman is clothed with the sun, and she has the moon under her feet, and she has 12 stars making up a crown upon her head. Well, that picture 
directly relates back to Joseph's dream back in all the way back in Genesis chapter 37 verses 9 and 10. In that dream, Joseph saw his father. Now who was his father? Jacob and Jacob remember had his name changed to Israel. So Joseph saw his father as the sun and he saw his mother as the moon and his 11 brothers were 12 stars. Of course Joseph would be the 12th star. All right? And then Joseph told this dream, that's where he made the mistake, he told it to his brothers and they weren't very happy about that because all these the sun, the moon and the stars bowed down to Joseph. But when he told his dream to his father Jacob, Jacob, Israel his name was, had no problem whatsoever understanding that that dream represented his family. And, of course, we know that it was from him that the 12 tribes of Israel came. Now, in Revelation 12, 2, back to our chapter here, this woman is said to have travailed much in giving birth to her male child. And if you know anything at all about the history of Israel, you know that it is full of prolonged suffering. No other nation on earth has ever suffered so severely and for so long as has the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. The travail speaks of her suffering prior to giving delivery of her special child. Now, why did Israel suffer so much prior to giving birth to her son? Well, the reason is because of the next main character we find in Revelation chapter 12, and that is the great red dragon. And once again, as with the sun-clothed woman, we discover that this great red dragon is... Uh, a sign. He is not to be taken literally. I mean, it's not a great big red dragon like you would see on the cartoons. It's a symbol. And a, the same word is used for wonder there in verse 3 as was used back in verse 1. The Greek word that literally means sign. So who does this great red dragon symbolize? Well, as I told you before, there's no reason to even speculate about this, even though I think if we speculated, we'd guess right anyway. But the Bible itself tells us who he is in verse 9, where it says, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. Now, there is a good deal of information told to us about Satan in this chapter. <clears throat> he is really the main character in this chapter. And we learn a lot about him just by seeing all the many names that John gave to him. First of all, he's called a great red dragon. And a dragon, of course, denotes something that is fearful and dangerous and has a cruel character. And, of course, that speaks of Satan very aptly. Well, during this present church age, Satan generally conceals his dragon-like character, doesn't he? And it, he appears instead as an angel of the light. That's his, his best tactic in this age, the church age, is to appear as an angel of light, and especially to stand behind pulpits in Christian churches. Because he is also 
the great deceiver, as it tells us at the end of verse 9. It says he deceives the whole world. He deceives many, many people, even in Christian churches. He deceives them into thinking that they are going to heaven just because they are good people or because they are involved in church work or because they are a church member or because their parents were good people and good church members and whatever or because they've been baptized or confirmed into the church. He also deceives many people by enticing them to follow him. And many of those who do follow him actually think that they are following that which is good. And this, of course, is exactly what he is going to manage to do worldwide through the Antichrist because people will be enticed into following the Antichrist because they will actually think that he is good. They will think that he is the Christ, the true Christ. Well, in addition to being called the dragon, John added two adjectives. He told, told us that he was great, not just a dragon, but he was a great dragon. And, of course, that speaks of his immense power. Don't ever underestimate the power of Satan. He's very, very powerful. And he, we're also told that he was red. I wish I could have colored transparencies. I guess I could have taken the time and colored him in, but he's red there. And the Greek word for red is not the usual word for red. The usual word for red in Greek is kokino. But here the word is pyros. And it only appears, that particular word for red, only appears one other place in the New Testament. And that is in Revelation 6.4. Go back to Revelation 6.4 and see what that speaks about. It talks there about the rider on the red horse, the Piro's horse. Now remember that second horseman of the apocalypse who came out when Christ opened the second seal judgment. He represented war and bloodshed because he was given a great sword and with it he went forth to battle. Now I believe that these, you know, because the Holy Spirit only used this little word for red in two places in all of the new testament that he was wanting us to connect satan the great red dragon with this second horseman of the apocalypse and that's very interesting because we know that satan was the driving force behind the first horseman wasn't he he the first horseman was the antichrist now we learn that he's also the driving force behind the second horseman. Even though Christ initiated these judgments because he's the one who broke open the seals, yet Satan is the, the instigator, the driving force behind them. And from the, the, uh, the war of the second horseman came, what comes from war, natural result of war is famine. And then from famine, all kinds of diseases spread, and we found out that one-fourth of the world would actually perish. And so all four of the horsemen are connected to the great red dragon, and we see that connection through that one little interesting word for red, and that is the red, the color of blood that is used there in the word pyros. So that, I just thought that was a very interesting connection. All right, you can go back to Revelation 12. Satan is also called that old serpent, in verse 9, and of course that takes us all the way back to the first time that we ever see Satan in the Bible, which is in the Garden of Eden where he had an attack on another woman, right? 
woman named Eve. Actually, the term serpent should remind us of God's words to Satan in Genesis 3.19 when he said, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. If you don't have that verse in your Bible underlined, you need to. That's the first time that God presents to the world the fact that he is going to send a Messiah Redeemer who would be miraculously born of a woman. We know it's a miracle birth because women don't have seed. So this is speaking of a miraculous birth. We know, of course, from Isaiah 7:14 that a virgin would conceive and bear a child, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so it would be this miraculously born seed with a capital S of woman who would give the fatal blow to the head of the serpent. And the serpent is Satan. And so that's, that's of course, one of the reasons why, why Satan hates Israel so much. We'll get into that in a little bit. Well, John also referred to Satan as the devil, and that word means slanderer or accuser. And then he gives the most common name for him, which is Satan, in verse 9, and that literally means adversary. The devil is the adversary of all of God's children, as well as being the adversary of God's son, the Lord Jesus Well, finally, in verse 10, he is called the accuser of the brethren. And this speaks of Satan's terrible work right before the throne of God, where he attempts day and night to discredit and shame the saints before God himself. So then we discover why Israel has suffered so much travail and pain. It's because the great red dragon, Satan, who has known ever since the fall of man in the garden that the woman's seed would one day be born from Israel. Well, he didn't know that back in Genesis. He learned that information later when he listened to God give his promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And then he learned he would come through the line of David. He learned all these things. He learned that this male seed would defeat him with a fatal blow to his head. Therefore, Satan has been very intent, even before Israel existed as a nation, he has been intent on destroying the human race altogether so that no woman could ever birth this Messiah, this Redeemer, this one who would crush his head. And we remember several weeks ago, we saw how he attempted to do this by allowing the demonic fallen angels to cohabitate with the women of earth, the daughters of men, in order to corrupt the human race so that the Messiah could never be born from a righteous seed as the God-man. Well then, of course, in order to preserve the human race from total corruption, God had to send a global flood. And he had to bind in the bottomless pit those demons who were involved in that wickedness. And then God had to start humanity all over again from only eight righteous people. And we're going to talk a little later about all that Satan has done to Israel once she came into existence so as to prevent her from giving birth to this Redeemer's son. But right now I need to finish telling you about the description of the great red dragon. In verse 3, 
John told us that this dragon has seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. You see how much information is given to us about Satan in this one chapter? It's all about him. In your homework, I have you go through and list every single verse where he has a name. And it's almost every one of the verses. But uh, what is this talking about? Now, this sounds really strange. Okay, it says he has seven heads and seven crowns on his head and ten horns. Well, again, that, of course, is symbolic language, and the Old Testament is where we have to go to help us to understand what this is speaking about. In Daniel chapter 2, we have King Nebuchadnezzar's dream about a giant multi-metallic statue. And Daniel interpreted that dream as representing the succeeding Gentile world empires, beginning with Babylon. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, the Roman Empire, and then down at the bottom, the final world empire was represented by the ten toes on this statue. And that empire will be the revived Roman Empire. Well, in Daniel chapter 7... Daniel himself has a dream, and he dreams about four beasts, which, just like the statue, will represent the succeeding Gentile empires, Gentile empires of the world. And they're the same, uh, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And the final beast has ten horns, and that those ten horns correspond with the ten toes of the statue, and they both symbolize the revived final form of the Roman Empire, which during the last days when the Antichrist is here on earth, he will be the ruler of this ten-nation reestablished Roman Empire. And it will, when he is in power, consist of ten nations. And this is exactly what we see developing today in the European Union. doesn't have ten nations right now, but it will, I guarantee you, when the Antichrist is ruling. Now, the seven heads with the seven crowns, we're going to really discuss next time when we get to Revelation chapter 13, because there we're going to be introduced to the two beasts. We're not going to be talking about them this morning, but next time we will be, the Antichrist and the false prophet. But they may refer to the seven major world empires which the great red dragon, Satan, has used to persecute Israel. But we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 13. Now in verse 4, we read about the tail of this great red dragon. And his tail swept away one-third of the stars of heaven and cast them down to the earth. Now this takes us back to the beginning of things and Satan's initial rebellion against God. And we read about that, wasn't it, a couple weeks ago when we looked at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. We know that when Satan, who was formerly called Lucifer, the most magnificent angel God had ever created, that when Satan rebelled, or Lucifer rebelled against God, a significant part of the angels, and they are angels are referred to as stars many times in the scripture, that they rebelled with Satan. And from this verse now, here in chapter 12 of Revelation, we actually find out that it was one-third of all the angels who 
joined Lucifer in his conceited revolt against God, and consequently they fell with him. Now these fallen angels are known as demons today, and they have been Satan's assistants ever since in his effort to devour the woman, Israel. Now, ever since hearing the first divine prophecy back there in Genesis 3.15 regarding the Messiah who would, would one day come to redeem men and defeat himself, ever since hearing that, Satan and his demonic forces have been on one continuous mission to destroy the woman's seed. You know, behind everything that goes on on this planet, if you ever, if you ever want to come right down to the crux of everything, is the fact that there is a great spiritual battle going on between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We did a study on, uh, I think I called the tape, What on, what on Earth is Going On? And that's what, what it's all about, is this big spiritual battle that is going on behind everything. Now, the first evidence of this battle occurred, of course, after the fall, occurred when Cain, who was the seed of the serpent, tried to kill his righteous brother, Abel. And, of course, it was going to be through Abel that the Messiah would come. God intervened, and he sent another son, another righteous son, named Seth, which means substitute. He was a substitute for Abel. Now, as already stated, the demonic world later attempted to corrupt the entire human race. And, uh, you know so that the Messiah could never be born from righteous seed at all. And that we learned about that in Genesis chapter 6. Well, once Satan learned that the Messiah would come through the nation of Israel, then he began to center his attacks on the Jewish people. And he used Pharaoh in the days of the birth of baby Moses because Pharaoh gave the edict, remember, to destroy all the male babies which would be born to Jewish women. And after a while, that would definitely eliminate the Jewish people from the face of the earth. But, of course, God intervened, and he didn't allow this to happen. And he also saw to it that his chosen deliverer of the Jewish people from Egypt was spared, and he, of course, was Moses. And then Satan also attempted to use Pharaoh's army, which sought after the fleeing Jews of the Exodus and trapped them at the Red Sea and wiped them out. But again, God intervened by opening the Red Sea and allowing his people to pass through on dry ground and then, of course, closing up the Red Sea on top of the Egyptian army and destroying it entirely. Then Satan and his forces worked heavily on the minds and the hearts of the Israelites themselves, you know, trying greatly to discourage them in their wilderness uh, wanderings for 40 years. You know, many of them even wanted to turn back and go into Egypt. And there they would just eventually amalgamate into the rest of the world, and there would be no Jewish people today. Well, Satan, during this time of the wilderness wandering, wanderings, used many, many tricks of his trade to destroy them. But God always intervened through his man, Moses, and he always managed to overcome the situations which assailed them. And we know, of course, that Satan later on used Saul to attempt to kill David, right? Satan learned that the Messiah would come through the line of David, so he used Saul to try to kill him for many years. And then Satan used a very, very wicked queen, Queen 
Athaliah. Athaliah. I knew that. I just couldn't spit it out. Have you ever heard of her? Athaliah. Thank you. <laughs> Should have said it louder. Queen Athaliah. As a picture, I'm sure she wasn't that beautiful, but she was very, very wicked. And she actually had all of the royal Davidic seed of the house of Judah slain. Can you imagine? This included her own children and all of her own grandchildren. And she thought that she had been completely successful in totally wiping out the royal seed of the house of David. But God had intervened by seeing to it that one little baby grandchild named Joash was spared. Joash was hidden in the temple of the Lord until he was seven years old, and then he was brought out before the people, and he was crowned the rightful king. And of course, then they did away with the queen. It took her life. She was very, very wicked. And God saw to it anyway that this one small boy, Joash, preserved the line of David and Judah from total annihilation so that the Christ child could be born. The Old Testament becomes very interesting when you read it in light of the battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Well, Satan also used King Ahasuerus. Now, that one I got out. (laughs) That's actually harder than Athaliah. But um, King Ahasuerus of Persia was tricked, you all know the story, by the very wicked Haman into issuing a decree to murder all of the Jews. And if Queen Esther, who herself was Jewish, if she had not been used of God to intervene for her people, then the Jewish race would have perished from the face of the earth. But, of course, we know that God did intervene, and Haman actually hung on the gallows, which he had had prepared for Mordecai, Esther's cousin, uncle, cousin, something like that. Uh, So, anyway, Haman hanged on his own gallows, the gallows he had prepared to hang the Jewish people on. But it's interesting that Satan always seemed to have another dragon standing by. As a matter of fact... The word dragon in the Bible is actually used for King Nebuchadnezzar. He is called a dragon and um, for Pharaoh. Both of them are referred to as dragons. Well, King Nebuchadnezzar was used by Satan to carry the Jewish people into captivity into the pagan and very, very worldly Babylon. And unfortunately, many of the Jewish people got quite fat and happy over there in Babylon. They kind of liked Babylon. It had a lot of things that they didn't get over in Israel. And so when after 70 years they were free to go back to Israel, most of them didn't want to go back. And if they had stayed there, what would have happened? They would have, you know, been amalgamated into Babylonian society, intermarried, and eventually the Jewish race would have been just... It would have gone extinct. But it's um, interesting that God, of course, always had, as Satan had his dragons, God always had his special men. He had Daniel, and he had Ezekiel, and he had his faithful but small remnant of true believers who did indeed want to get back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and start to worship God again the way that they were supposed to. 
Satan then used the enemies when they did return, the small remnant returned to Israel. Satan used the enemies of Israel to try to discourage the rebuilding of Jerusalem so that the Jewish people would just give up. And then again, they would disperse throughout the world and be lost. But God had his Nehemiahs, and he had his Ezras, and he had Joshua the high priest, and he had Zerubbabel the governor, and so the Jewish people began to trickle back into their country. And then Satan must have really, really panicked when God put together in promised marriage the perfect couple, because both came from the lineage of David. And then when God put the miraculous seed of the Holy Spirit into the virgin woman's womb, Satan just really went wild. And so he began getting very busy working in the life. He had nine months to do this. Well, he actually started ahead of time, but he started working in the life of a very wicked man, a paranoid man named Herod the Great. Herod was so paranoid about losing his throne to someone else. He had actually no business sitting on the throne because he was an Idumean. He came from the Edomites, and he had no right sitting on the throne of Israel to begin with. But time after time, he would run to Rome, to the Caesar, in order to try to preserve his own crown. He ran one time to Antony, and he ran another time to Octavian. And he even had his own wife and his sons killed because of fearing that they would take over his throne. And then he systematically searched out every single one of the Hasmonean line in order to eliminate them from claiming his throne. And then when the wise men from the east came and informed him about the birth of the true king of the Jews, this satanically driven man really went berserk, and he gave the order to have all the little male children to age two years of age and under, in Bethlehem, slaughtered. But God again intervened by having his son safely removed to Egypt. And this is what is meant if you look at Revelation 12:4, the latter part of the verse where John wrote, And the dragon stood before the woman which was ready to be delivered or to devour her child as soon as it was born. Isn't that exactly what Satan tried to do through Herod? Well, the entire life of the woman's male child, and this is interesting, his entire earthly life is completely skipped over in Revelation chapter 12. Because the next thing, look, if you look at the, um, the bottom of verse 4, it says that he was going to be devoured as soon as he was born. The next thing that we read about is him being caught up into the throne. Of God, you know, in heaven, in, in verse 5. His whole earthly life is skipped over. However, we know, because we've studied the life of Christ, those of you that were with us, we know that during the Lord's earthly life, Satan was very, very active in trying to destroy him before he could ever get around to fatally bruising his own head. So we found Satan attempt, uh, attempting to get the Lord to sin in the wilderness because he knew if he sinned he could never ever redeem mankind or bruise his own head so he tried to get Jesus to sin in the wilderness and he tried to use the jealousy and the hatred of the Jewish religious leaders to to kill Christ prematurely before he got to the cross and Satan tried to drown him 
one time on a satanically brewed storm on the Sea of Galilee. And he attempted to even get the people of the Lord's own hometown of Nazareth to push him off of a cliff. And Satan tempted the Lord to accept the crown, whoops, without the, you know, the crown, the kingship before the cross. And that was after he fed the 5,000. The people wanted to crown him king. And so Satan used that to try to tempt the Lord, but it didn't tempt him. And then Satan even entered into one of the Lord's own disciples in order to betray him to the religious authorities, to the Jews. Satan was hoping that the Jews would stone him to death. And then, of course, he wouldn't fulfill prophecy about being pierced. All right, well, Satan did everything in his power to get the Lord Jesus to fail in his mission of redeeming lost men and fatally bruising his own head by defeating sin and death. But when Christ managed to go to the cross still totally sinless, and when he endured the suffering and the shame of the cross and resisted all the temptations that were hurled at him while he hung on the cross, remember when we talked about how they... They said, prove yourself, prove that you're the Messiah and come down off of that cross. And then we'll all know and we'll all believe that was Satan tempting him off of the cross before he would finish his work. Well, when he managed to resist all of those temptations on the cross and he paid in full the redemption price for the sins of the entire world and then gave up his own spirit and died only to three days later rise from the grave and defeat death then satan was totally defeated that's when he received the fatal blow to his head the woman's seed had conquered sin and death And those are Satan's greatest weapons of warfare, sin and death. He is now a defeated foe. He's just awaiting sentencing. He's a defeated foe, although he is on a long chain. Well, since the cross, the old devil has been doing everything he can to thwart the eventual judgment to come. Perhaps he somehow thinks that he can yet really hurt the male child by continually persecuting the woman who gave birth to him. And that woman is Israel. And that's why throughout the church age, Satan not only persecuted Christ's bride, the church, but why he has continued to attempt to wipe out the Jewish people. He not only has used... um, men down through the long history of Israel to try to exterminate them, such men as, you know, Hitler. But he even managed to use Christendom itself in his attempt to exterminate the Jews. He used um, the Crusaders for one example. And he must have been hoping that he could prevent any remnant of Jewish people from ever returning to Israel. You know, they've been out of the land since 70 A.D., Satan knows that the book of Revelation, well, actually the whole Bible, speaks about Christ's return, his second coming, to where? Where will he return? To Israel. And he will save Israel. And Satan knows that. He knows it better than a lot of Christians know it, a lot of churchgoers. And he knows that Christ will fulfill all the promises that he has made to Israel. 
And, you see, if she doesn't exist anymore, then Satan would succeed in making God a liar. And Christ would have no Jewish remnant to return to or to save. So once the devil sees that his time is growing short, he is going to use the Antichrist, who is going to be a Pharaoh and a Nebuchadnezzar and a Haman and a Judas and a Hitler, all rolled together into one. He's going to use him to really go after Israel with everything that he has. And so in the last three and a half years, after this satanically possessed man has managed to totally deceive Israel into thinking that he is her true Christ, then he will suddenly turn on her in Satan's fullest effort ever to destroy her. And this is why Israel will flee into the wilderness where God will um, have prepared her a special place of refuge and safety. Well, Revelation 12:6 speaks of the woman's flight into the wilderness. And this is where she will be divinely protected and nourished by God himself for 1,260 days. And what does that equal? Three and a half years. This will be the three and a half years of the Great Tribulation. By the way, let me stop here for a minute and mention something. Um, notice that verse 5, as I mentioned before, the end of verse 5 speaks about the Lord's ascension into heaven, right? And then what does verse 6 talk about? The woman fleeing into the wilderness. Well, that speaks of the great tribulation. That's the last three and a half years of the tribulation. So we have in one verse the Lord's ascension, the next we're talking about the time of the tribulation. Where is the church age? It is entirely leaped over. It's not there. And this is exactly what occurs in Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy between verses 26 and 27. There is no mention of the church. It's just completely skipped over. And that is because God is not speaking about the church. Remember from chapters 6 through 18, or even 19, when the Lord returns, the church is not seen on earth. The only time the church is seen is in heaven, represented by the 24 elders. So this confirms here that if the woman was the church, certainly there would be some mention about the church in these verses, but it's just completely leapt over, leapt over because, is that a word, leapt, leaped? Because God isn't talking about the church. He is dealing with Israel. So I just want to bring that to your attention. So anyway, now we're talking about her flight into the wilderness. And the Lord himself spoke about this fleeing of Israel in the Olivet Discourse. In Matthew 24, verses 15 to 22, remember when he was telling his men about the things which would occur prior to his second coming. He... he, in, this, um, in these verses, he warned Israel to flee, and he told her when she should do so. He said, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. That's in the scripture. In other words, Jesus was saying, When you see the Antichrist go into the temple and set himself up to be worshipped, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Don't even take time 
to get your cat. Leave. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. If you're half naked, don't worry about it. Flee. And woe to them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, because that's going to slow you down if you have a baby. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter. It's harder to travel in the winter. Neither on the Sabbath day. Why? Because they weren't allowed to walk very far on the Sabbath day. And if somebody's fleeing, they're going to be very conspicuous to the Antichrist men. He says, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. So taking the Lord's advice, many will flee from Jerusalem. Perhaps if they're really wise and they read this ahead of time, or maybe they were warned by the two witnesses to do this, which I would imagine, if you were one of the two witnesses, wouldn't you be telling the Jewish people, look, don't wait around for this Antichrist to come in and break the treaty and go in there and set up his image in the temple. Get out of here now. So those who were really wise, I think, would leave ahead of time. Others will desperately attempt to escape from Jerusalem and Judea when they actually do see the true character of the Antichrist revealed. You know, they won't listen to the prophets, the witnesses, and they won't listen to Christ until he actually goes ahead and and does this. Then they will know that he definitely is a false Christ, and then they will attempt to escape. But escaping then will be much, much more difficult because the Antichrist men will be everywhere. But God will intervene. Hasn't he always? Didn't we just see that, how he's always intervened? He's going to intervene again, as we see in verse 14, to get a remnant of his people to safety. So God himself, once he gets them to safety, he's going to miraculously provide safety and nourishment for the Jewish people, just as he did with their ancestors in the wilderness for 40 years. So God will intervene in Satan's plan to once again try to eliminate Israel. No matter how unfaithful Israel has been to God, yet God always remains faithful to her. See, Israel is God's espoused wife, and he's faithful to her, even if she isn't to him. Well, then, very briefly stated, this is the story of the war which has been waging for thousands of years between the woman, Israel, and the great red dragon, Satan. And now we're going to turn and read about another war which will be waged between Michael and the holy angels and the dragon and his fallen angels. And this we will look at in verses 7 to 9. Okay? says, and there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels, and prevailed not, neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. All right, I'm going to end right there for now. Now, these verses actually take us back a little bit in time here and tell us why it is that Israel will have to flee to the wilderness during the final three and a half years of the tribulation period. There is going to be a war in the heavens. Now, this is speaking about the atmospheric heavens above the earth. And this war is going to be between Michael and the holy angels and between Satan and the fallen angels. And this war will take place in the middle 
sometime in the middle of the seven-year tribulation period. Well, Satan, we're told here, Satan and his followers will lose. God will see to that, and he will be they will be cast to the earth, where he will then focus his worst anger on who? Israel, right. Now, there are only two angels named in the scripture. One is Gabriel, and we could call Gabriel the announcement angel. Almost every time we see him, he's making an announcement. And the other is Michael, and Michael is apparently the commanding general of the heavenly angels. Michael is always seen battling with Satan or with Satan's followers in the scripture. For example, in Daniel 10, he is seen battling with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Persia is Iran. There's a very powerful angel over the nation of Iran. Isn't that evident? (laughs) A demonic angel. And uh, this is either Satan himself or a very, very strong fallen angel because it took Michael, who's the captain of the good army, It took him 21 days to get through with his message for Daniel. Well, then we see Michael battling Satan himself for the body of Moses in Jude 9. And so it is, um, and then in 12.1, we find out that Michael is especially assigned by God to protect the nation of Israel. He is the great prince who standeth for the children of thy people. He is the great protector angel of Israel. Now, apparently, when Satan realizes that his time is growing short before the Lord's return to earth, he's going to attempt to wage an all-out war to conquer the holy angels. Perhaps he will think that he can win now because he's going to have the additional assistance of all those unbound angels from the bottomless pit and he's going to have the assistance of those four very strong angels who were loosed from the Euphrates River region. At any rate, he's going to try. He's going to try, but the Lord God will see to it that Michael and his holy forces will defeat Satan and cast him and his demons from their strongholds in the air down to earth. Now, this will be the second part of the fall of Satan. He will, at this point then, have no further access to God. God's throne in order to be the accuser of the brethren and he will no longer be the prince of the power of the air as the scripture calls him he and all of his demonic forces will be totally confined now to earth so watch out earth right now although this casting of Satan permanently from heaven and the even from the atmospheric heavens that's going to be a great triumph for heaven and they're going to rejoice about it at the same time it's going to be a terrible time of unprecedented horror for earth and so let's look now at heaven's triumph in verses 10 to 12a and then we're going to look at earth's trouble in the latter part of verse 12 heaven's triumph uh, starting at verse 10 Uh, and i heard a loud voice saying in heaven now is come salvation and strength. Now that salvation is speaking, of course, these people are already in heaven, so that salvation is speaking about they're saved from the presence of evil. Now has come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ, for the accuser of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto the death. 
Therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. All right, it's going to stop there. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary, and he has wonderful commentaries on all the books in the New Testament called the B series. I recommend anything by Warren Wearsby very highly. Well, he brought up a very interesting point, which I'd never read before, in his commentary on Revelation. He said this. Now listen and see if you get what he's saying, all right? He says, perhaps there is another factor involved in this war. After the church is taken to heaven, believers will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have their works examined. On the basis of this judgment, rewards will be given. Now, it seems likely that Satan will be present at this event. Now, remember the church is raptured before the seven years begin. So they figure the judgment seat of Christ will happen in the very early part of while the tribulation is going on down here on earth. All right, so he says it seems likely that Satan will be present at this event and will accuse the saints, pointing out all the spots and wrinkles in the church. The name devil means accuser, and Satan means adversary. Satan stands at the throne of God and fights the saints by accusing them. But Jesus Christ, the heavenly advocate, represents the church before God's holy throne. Because Jesus Christ died for us, we can overcome Satan's accusations by the blood of the Lamb. Our salvation is secure, not because of our own works, but because of his finished work at Calvary. How furious Satan will be when the church comes forth in glory without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. When the accuser sees that his tactics have failed, he will become angry and threaten the very presence of heaven. End of quote. So what Dr. Wearsby is suggesting here is that after being present, and we don't know this for sure, but it's something interesting to think about. After being present at the judgment seat of Christ, where Christ is going to reward his church following the rapture, And after seeing how none of his attacks throughout the church age, none of his accusations against the true church or the saints has had any effect whatsoever on blemishing her, and she comes forth without any spots or wrinkles, Satan is going to be furious. And therefore, Dr. Wearsby proposes that this is when Satan will engage furiously in an all-out war with the heavenly hosts against the leadership of Michael. And the end result will be a resounding defeat for Satan and a very, very furious foe venting all of his anger against the inhabitants of the earth, especially Israel. Now, the response to heaven... A response of heaven to Satan's permanent removal, as you can imagine, is great relief and great rejoicing. At long last, they are saved from even the presence of evil and from listening to the saints of God being accused day and night, day and night before the throne of God. I'm sure they're all greatly relieved not to hear that anymore. Well, verse 11 gives us three reasons why the... um, heavenly saints are going to rejoice over Satan's defeat. And I'm just going to cover these real quickly because of time. They're going to rejoice over their own cleansing. They were overcome. They overcame Satan by the blood of the Lamb. Not because they had anything good, but it was the blood of the Lamb. So they rejoice over their cleansing. They rejoice over their confession. 
You know, it was by their mouth that they gave word of their testimony for Christ, and that's what we have to do in order to defeat Satan. We have to confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus, right? We need to do that. That's part of being saved. You really need to tell somebody about it. And then they also rejoice over their courage. The tribulation saints primarily are the ones being referred to here by the loud rejoicing voice of of heaven. They love not their own lives even unto death. You know, the Lord promised that he that findeth his life shall lose it. But he that loses his life for my name's sake will find it. Whenever a man or a woman tries to live their life for their own selfish pleasure, what really happens? They lose it. Their life is lived in vain. But if they uh, are more concerned with pleasing the Lord Jesus and with being faithful to him, then they are really saving their own lives and they're gaining so much more. Satan's power is limited and his tactics will always fail, always fail when God's people trust the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, when they trust his word, testimony, and when they put Christ's glory even before their own lives then you can always defeat Satan. There's nothing that the devil can do to rob the believer of salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. Well, continuing in John's vision, we then come to the dark side of the victory of Michael. Because in the latter part of verse 12, we find the, secondly part of the, the second part of the heavenly proclamation. Let's look at that, where it starts out and it says, Woe, this is in verse 12, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. We're not left to speculate here as to how Satan's rage is going to manifest itself on earth once he finds himself limited just to this planet and when he realizes that he has but a short time left. His full wrath is going to be waged against the woman who brought forth the man-child. And obviously Satan will um, not be waging a war against the Lord's earthly mother Mary. See, this is where it wouldn't fit, because Mary is not going to be down here on earth. Mary is in heaven, and she will continue to be in heaven. This woman, this sun-clothed woman, is not Mary. She's not the church. She's not Mary Baker, Glover, Edison Perry, Eddie Perry, whatever her name was. (laughs) She is Israel. All right, so now let's look at the war with the woman renewed. Okay, verses 13 to 16. It says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast unto the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. And the serpent cast out of his mouth water as a flood after the woman, that he might carry, cause her to be carried away of the flood. And the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. Whew, I'm so short on time, but I've got to cover this a little bit here. Satan can no longer attack the male child, neither can he, after his fall from heaven, any longer accuse the church before the throne of God. So his anger is going to be totally centered on the woman who brought the male child into the world. Now, the devil 
may actually possess the Antichrist at this time, which is the middle of the tribulation. Because we know that this is the time when the Antichrist will desecrate the temple and actually go in and, you know, make uh, uh, put himself up to be worshipped as God. And that certainly sounds like um, Satan, doesn't it? And then, of course, he's going to personally supervise the final horrible bloodbath of anti-Semitic persecution. I think that um, this is when the Antichrist is possessed by Satan is after Satan is cast out of heaven. He couldn't possess the Antichrist before that time. You know why? Because Satan is not omnipresent, and he couldn't be accusing the brethren in heaven, and he couldn't be fighting Michael in the atmospheric heavens and be possessing one man on earth at the same time. So I believe after he is confined to earth, that's when he enters into the Antichrist, and that's when the Antichrist sets himself up to be worshipped and ends the temple worship and all of that. Now, because of this persecution, the woman, Israel, is going to flee. The wise, as I mentioned, who will have listened to the two witnesses... They will um, have already fled prior to waiting around for the Antichrist to desecrate the temple and begin his season of persecution. Now, perhaps Juanita Matthews just asked me about this last week, and I knew this was coming up, but this to me makes the best sense for when the invasion of the army from the north, Gog, and Magog, which is given to us in Ezekiel 38 and 39, there is going to be an invading army that will come from the direct north of Jerusalem. If you go straight north of Jerusalem, you find Moscow. Anyway, there's other things that tell us this is going to be uh, an alliance of Russia and other countries. They're going to come down on Israel. Well, to me, it makes sense that this is the time in the middle of the tribulation when this invading army will come into Israel, and this will actually be used of God, I believe, to trigger many of the Jews from fleeing into the wilderness. It's a satanically driven army. They have selfish motives for coming down to invade Israel. They're they're also attacking the power of the Antichrist because he's going to be the ruler over the European Confederation, and they're trying to oppose his power, and he still hasn't broken his treaty with Israel, so this is an affront to his power, so he's going to move in. And I believe this is going to be what moves Antichrist actually into Jerusalem. This is so complicated because there's so many things that are going to be going on at the same time. But I think that this is when the invasion of Gog and Magog occurs, is in the middle of the tribulation period. Well, anyway, verse 14 tells us that the woman is going to be assisted in her flight to the wilderness by being given two wings of a great eagle. This is so beautiful. And she will be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That speaks of three and a half years, okay? Now, what does it mean that she's going to be given two wings of an eagle, which will fly her into the wilderness for her protection? Well, according to other scripture, this means that God himself is going to provide for her escape and for her protection. One of the most beautiful pictures in all of the word of God is when God is speaking to his people in Exodus 19.4. And he says this. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you unto myself. And then also in Deuteronomy, we read this about God's protection of his beloved Israel. He says... uh, Oops, that's the wrong picture. He says, 
As an eagle stirs up her nest, fluttering over her young, spreading abroad her wings, taking them and bearing them, you know, the little eaglets, on her wings, so the Lord alone did lead Israel. Isn't that beautiful? Now, in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, in the days of Israel's deepest sorrow, this is a time of Jacob's trouble, time of her deepest persecution, God is once again going to support her remnant with his everlasting arms of love and divine protection, just as he bore Israel of old on eagle's wings in the Old Testament. Now, God may use a massive airlift to do this. I think it's very interesting that the commercial airline of Israel is called El Al. Do you know what that means? It means the eagle. So maybe that'll be it. I would like to think, this is just my personal opinion, but I'm praying about this. I would like to think that this is going to be a massive airlift. I don't know why I'm getting emotional. Conducted by the United States of America. Because I know the Bible says, blessed are those who bless Israel. And I just pray this. I love our country, and I would pray that we would stand behind Israel through the whole thing. The symbol of our country is what? An eagle. So would you pray with me about that? I would really hope that we would help Israel at this time, because then I know the Lord would bless us. Well, it's interesting to speculate about the special place to which the remnant of Israel will be taken. Now, many down through the years have thought that it would be Jordan, I mean, uh, Petra in Jordan. If you ever saw the Indiana Jones, one of the movies took place there in Petra. It's a natural rock city fortress, and it's accessible by only one very narrow entrance, which can easily be guarded. And so many have thought that it would be Petra, and so they have been, Christians have been putting Bibles there and tracts and all kinds of things in Petra for years. This is actually where the remnant of Jews went when they were being invaded in 70 AD. Those who who survived Titus Vespasian's invasion of Israel and destroyed Jerusalem, those who left because they took heed of Christ's words in Luke 21, verses 20 to 24, actually, they listened to Christ and they got out of there when they saw the Roman troops coming. They went to Petra and they were the only ones who survived. I mean, that weren't, you know, dispersed or taken off as slaves. They actually went to Petra. So some think they're going to go there. But whether it's going to be Petra or not, the the thing against Petra nowadays is it it was very safe at one time, but today with Scud missiles and bombs and things, it wouldn't be a very safe place to run. So I don't know. Another possibility is that the Jews who are wise enough to flee Jerusalem and the surrounding area will scatter to the many natural caves and hiding places in the wilderness section of Israel, just as David hid, you know, for many, many years from Saul. Another idea is maybe that they will go to the um, Sinai wilderness, where God protected and provided for Israel for 40 years. And maybe God will actually... You know, it says he will nourish and maybe he'll actually send down manna from heaven again and water out of a rock. I don't know. Maybe he'll even feed them as he did with Elijah by the mouths of ravens. Well, seeing her flee, Satan 
again referred to as the serpent, is going to cast out of his mouth water as a flood so as to cause her to be carried away by the flood. Now this could speak of a massive army which is going to flow like a river upon them. You know, just kind of like what Pharaoh did when he sent his army after out, uh, out after the Jews who were leaving Egypt. Now, and this is, again, just something for you to think about here, but the only feasible time, as I told you, when the attack described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 from Gog and the land of Magog, from Russia, in other words, when it could actually occur, the only feasible time, would be sometime during the middle of the tribulation. Now, according to those chapters in Ezekiel, we are told that a massive army is going to advance upon Israel like a storm, and she's going to, the army is going to cover the land in the latter days. So this isn't a war that's already taken place. It's one that's going to happen in the latter days. Now, the countries involved in this attack will be Russia, who will have made an alliance with Iran, and with Ethiopia and Libya and probably Germany and Turkey. Now, it's interesting that this invading army of Gog is going to be defeated by God himself. Israel won't lift a finger. The Antichrist won't lift a finger. God is going to defeat this army. When it reaches Israel, God is going to cause a massive earthquake in Israel. And this is going to so confuse these invading armies who are all going to be speaking different languages... They're going to be so confused and they're going to get so frightened from this earthquake that they're going to have communication breakdowns and they're going to begin to fight with one another. Now, I can see this with the Iranians and Ethiopians. I can see that. And then God is going to send additional natural catastrophes which are going to combine with the dirt and the debris from the earthquake to produce massive mudslides and floods. And they are going to kill many in this invading force and then he's going to send large hailstones if you think i'm making this up go ahead and read ezekiel 38 and 39 he's going to send hailstones which will kill many of the soldiers and the result is going to be that only one sixth of this army from the north is going to survive and they're going to flee with their tails between their legs now this could be how God is going to use the earth to help the woman. You see, as it says there in verse 16, and the earth helped the woman and the earth opened her mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon cast out of his mouth. See, Satan is the one sending this army from the north. Well, when the world, if you can just wait a few more minutes, I'm almost done. When the world sees what happened to this northern army, which attempted to attack Israel. They are going to attribute, this makes sense too, they're going to attribute the victory to the power of the beast who will have promised in his covenant, he will have promised Israel protection. And so, if you look at verse 13, I mean chapter 13, verse 4, they're going to say, who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And so they'll accredit this magnificent victory, not to God, but to the Antichrist. And therefore, they'll be glad to worship him. However, some, a remnant, will rightfully give the glory to God. In fact, Ezekiel 39, verse 22, tells us that this invasion from the north 
And God's miraculous intervention is to be a great sign to, who do you think? Israel, exactly. This destruction of this army is going to be used by the Lord to remove some of the scales from the eyes of the Jewish people. The Antichrist, however, who will be getting credit for the victory from the rest of the world is going to take advantage of this tremendous victory over the Russian alliance, and he is going to then destroy, we haven't even talked about this, this happens also, (laughs) he's going to destroy the false apostate church at this time and then he's going to break his treaty with Israel and then he's going to set himself up as the one to be worshipped in Israel so isn't that interesting now whether or not there is a correlation to this invading flood from the north and God's miraculous intervention or not um, I don't know for sure it makes sense to me. However, whatever the circumstances may be in which Satan, the dragon, is going to attempt to flood Israel, the result is going to be, just as it was in the brickyards of Egypt and in, you know, with the gallows of Haman, and in the days of Nebuchadnezzar and the concentration camps of Hitler, God is going to intervene in order to preserve his people from annihilation. Just as he preserved Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, also known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in the fiery furnace, so is he going to protect a remnant of the Jews during the fires of the Great Tribulation period. All right, I didn't get to verse 17, but it's very uh, very simple. He, the dragon has one more war, and it's with the converted Jews of Israel. One final war. Let me read that verse. It says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. 